Well, we come to the reading of the word this morning. Uh, if you would stand together in honor of that. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And we get to see a little bit of Paul's resume laid out here. Um, so if you, uh, just to give you a little context for what is going on here, Paul is talking about himself as we get into these couple verses. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word to us. And Lord, I pray that as Nick comes this morning, that you would uh, give him wisdom and words from you to open that to us. Lord, may you work through your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning, Evergreen. It's good to see everyone. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Can't believe it's 2022. It's a surprising thing. Um, I'm just so taken aback by it. And we get to start off this new year talking about and looking at what God's Word has to say about probably the most important subject, at least to us personally, which is the value of knowing Christ. We've heard a lot about inflation and the fears of having the things that we own, the things that we've worked really hard to earn, having those things become worthless. We're afraid that all of our all the money that we put into our bank account is not going to be worth, we already know that it's not worth what it was when we put it in. And that can be a scary thing. But as Christians, the main thing that we put our stock in, the main thing that we consider as gain is not our money, not our families, not our family history, not in our own selves to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, no, the thing that we put our confidence in 
is Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at this morning, why? Why do we put our confidence in Christ? What value is there in knowing who Jesus Christ is? And not just knowing who he is and what he's done, but also knowing him personally. Not just knowing about the God of the universe, knowing about who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Holy Spirit is, but knowing them as your Lord and your Savior. What's the value in that? And Paul does this by pointing out to us a a stark contrast. We'll be examining first the imitation the things that market themselves as worth something, but we have an example here of something that's worthless. And then in uh, verses 7 through 11, we'll see what actually has worth, what actually has value. And what has actual value, you know, if you're going to ask me, what is your sermon about in one sentence? The value in knowing Jesus Christ is the value, the worth of possessing a real, tangible salvation. That's the value that we have as Christians in knowing who Jesus Christ is, knowing that he's our Lord. It's the value of possessing real salvation. So let's go ahead and look to see how he does that. Paul starts off in verse 1 with finally, or now then, and he's switching subjects. And he says, now, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. I have a book that I I haven't read. I've only read like 50 pages of it. But it's a John Piper book called God is the gospel. And listen to what he says about the gospel. How seldom God himself is proclaimed as the greatest gift of the gospel. But the Bible teaches that the best and final gift of God's love is the enjoyment of God's beauty. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. What Andrew read this morning from Psalm 96, O sing the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. The next verse there is, for great is his name. This is our God. The best and final gift of the gospel, what we're told in our text in verse 8 is what we gain is Christ himself. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing 
worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's what the Bible offers. The good news is God revealing himself to his people and him saving them. The gift of the gospel, the ultimate gift, is knowing the Lord. But what do we have often offered to us as good news? We have often offered to us the love. uh, We have turned the love of God and the gospel of Christ into a divine endorsement of our delight in many lesser things, especially the delight of being made much of. How much of the good news when it's offered to us, when we hear it, or even if you, when you think about when you offer to someone, when you tell someone why they should be a Christian, how often do we pitch to them all the benefits, maybe even the temporary benefits of this life, of having a good family, of having healthy relationships, of having maybe even the wisdom to get us on course, to being able to provide better for our families. In God is the Gospel, John Piper puts a really a quote that, um, a, a test question that will really gauge ourselves whether the thing we're valuing, if the thing that we're valuing is the same thing that the gospel is offering to us. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, with all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever, <coughs> you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Dear Christian, the thing that we should be motivated by this text to see is our answer should be a resounding no. Our answer should be a resounding no. And when we tell people why they should be a Christian, we should tell them the worth of Jesus Christ. Put his glory in front of them. That is why they should follow Jesus. It's because of who he is. It's because of what he has done. That's why we are Christians, if we're honest with ourselves. Do other benefits accompany it? Sure. And Paul, as we see in our text, is going to hold those out before us today. But all those benefits are just tangential to the reality of who Jesus is and the value of knowing him. Rejoicing in him is a topic that he's already talked about and what he will bring up again in chapter 4. And this rejoicing in the Lord, he said, is not anything, no trouble for him to write about but it's safe for you. Safe for you. This seems like a kind of a weird transition. Well, it's safe for them because of the dangers, the dangers that that we have in this world, dangers of being deceived. Specifically, Paul is worried about them being deceived by a certain group of people that he actually 
encounters a lot throughout the New Testament. The Judaizers. Look at verse 2. And as you look at verse 2, look at how many times look out comes up. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the same people group in all these. He's using alliteration here. And that last one kind of reveals who these people are because he doesn't really say much about them in our text. Those who mutilate the flesh. He's using a cognate of the same word as circumcision. But here, the form of it is someone who mutilates the flesh. The word is katatame, uh, and you can kind of hear its similar form in circumcision, that word peritame. Same, same word. But his point is when they are requiring circumcision of believers in order to be identified among the people of God, his point here is that they're not actually requiring true circumcision. What they're really asking people to do is just to cut themselves, to mark themselves. Why is that? Because the church, verse 3, the church is the real circumcision. I like that Anthony added that word when he's reading. The real circumcision is in the church. If you want to hear Paul really lay into these guys and kind of dissect the nuances of what they believe, you can read a letter like Galatians, where he spends the entire time focused on defending against the Judaizers. But in our text, he just insults them. He calls them dogs. Who are dogs? Well, Psalm 22, verse 16, says that when Jesus is on the cross, he was surrounded by dogs. In that case, it was Roman soldiers, Gentiles, people who are separated from the people of God, people who have no right to all the promises that Israel had, Gentiles. But also in Isaiah 56, verses 10 through 12, Isaiah uses the picture, and actually a lot of the prophets do, of the leaders of Israel who are leading uh, the people astray. He calls them worthless dogs, good-for-nothing mongrels. You might have in your picture when you think a dog, a nice lab, a cute puppy. But the ancient world did not have that image when they said the word dog. In the city, they thought of a mongrel, a scavenger, something that is digging through your cat, uh, trash, much like a raccoon, and eating it. Eating a garbage-eating mongrel, disease-ridden, a good-for-nothing animal. That's what they are. And then he gets really to the point when he calls them evildoers. That doesn't really need that much explanation. They're evildoers. And the reason why they're evildoers is because they're asking people to mutilate themselves. Circumcision loses its meaning when it's disconnected from the promises of God. It becomes something that you have to do to earn credit with God. Because Christ fulfilled the promises of circumcision that he gave to his people 
these guys continuing the pr- promise after Christ was all re- after he was crucified, they end up just requiring people to cut themselves. A practice God actually forbids. First Kings 18, what do the prophets, the false prophets do to get their false gods to hear them? They mutilate themselves. They cut themselves. God explicitly forbade this practice in Leviticus 21.5. You see, the significance of circumcision in marking out the people of God wasn't in the physical rite. Much like your baptism, the, your baptism, the significance of it does not stem from being washed with water. That's not how you have your sins forgiven. And that's not how you identify with the church. What's significant in baptism, what's significant in circumcision and how it marks us out as the true people of God is founded in God's promises. Those promises that are connected with that right make it significant, make it have value. And when you disconnect from circumcision, the promise of a redeemer who would die on the cross for your sins, when you disconnect it from that, you just have a bloody self-mutilating ritual that all the Gentiles have kind of always mocked. Let's dive into what he says in verse 3, what makes the true circumcision. Because this is pretty interesting. What marks the people of God? The true circumcision, the circumcision, are those who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We need to think, do these things mark us out when we read these? Paul uses three participles. He uses the word worship, describe the people of God. He uses the word boasting, or in our text, glorying. And he uses the type, no confidencing. It's kind of hard to say. No confidencing. Those are the things that describe the true circumcision. Those who worship by the Spirit of God. This should take you back to John chapter 4, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. She's fixated on where we are supposed to worship God. Are we supposed to worship God through the the self-made monuments that are in Samaria or the temple in Jerusalem? Jesus said that the Jews have it right on this one. Worship is to be conducted in the temple. However, A day is coming soon when that place was no longer going to be the central place of worship. But instead, God's people would worship God in spirit and in truth. My friends, that day has come. That has happened. That's why we're not all making pilgrimages to Israel to worship in the temple. That temple has been long since destroyed. But not only that, but the true circumcision, glory in Christ Jesus. This is the focal point, guys. This is the thing that's of inestimable value. I don't know why that was hard to say. This is the thing of significance. 
glory in Christ. And if you don't think of this as a verb, well, it is. And the word there is boasting, rejoicing, exalting, glorying in Christ Jesus. That marks a Christian. How do you determine what things that we actually value? Well, if you ask her, you probably know which Christmas presents your kids valued. When they opened it up, they got excited about something, and they might have gotten excited about all of it to have a certain show for you. But then there is something that really grabbed their attention. They couldn't stop talking about. They couldn't stop saying, look what I got. And then they showed their friends, look what I got. This is amazing. And they stopped focusing on all the other presents. That's what we get here. That's the significance. Boasting in it. Glorying in it. I value a good deal. When I see, well, not really spending money, but just seeing that something's cheaper kind of provokes me to be excited and to tell people, hey, if you need a haircut, you could go to Great Clips and there's a coupon for $10. I'm glorying in that. I'm excited about it. I see the worth and the value of it. And I'm telling other people. That's what Christians do for Christ. We see his value and we cannot help but proclaim and boast in his worth. Once again, is that true for you? How often do we find ourselves distracted by other things? How often do we boast in good deals at great clips? I don't know why that's the one that comes to my mind. How often do we boast in those things, but then when we are given the opportunity to boast in Christ, we don't? That's a tragedy. This is actually something that we are hearing right now for your safety. And the last thing is what's going to be the topic of conversation as we see the value of what is really worthless in verses four through six, when he says, putting no confidence in the flesh. Christians are people who don't confidence in themselves, in their own effort. Listen to how countercultural that is for us. Christians are people who don't glory, don't boast in their own self self-confidence. This is runs directly counter to a L'Oreal commercial I just saw recently that really took me back, where Viola Davis was telling me, you are worth it. You are valuable. You are loved. You are beautiful. This is what John Piper was talking about. We love to hear that about ourselves. We want to be able to be confident in ourselves. But where we're told to put our confidence is not in ourselves. You might be beautiful. You are valuable, but you're not to put your confidence in that. Your confidence in your stake is to be in Jesus Christ and him alone, and we'll get to the reason for that. So first, he does it by stark contrast. That's our first major point in our text. The stark contrast with what is worth a lot is going to be against what is worthless. 
Paul starts off in verse 4. Though I, my, though I myself, or though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul can play this game. The Judaizers think that being Jewish, identifying with the people of God via circumcision and outward rites and following the ceremonial law, if they put their confidence in that, which is actually worthless, Paul can play that game. Paul has outdone them all. If anyone thinks that they have confidence in their flesh, if they have self-confidence in themselves, Paul has more reason, which will become really significant when he says, you know what? All this reason, the best that the Judaizers hope to achieve, which I have achieved, is worthless to me. It's worthless. What does Paul point to? What are reasons that he could be self-confidence? And in his past life, he was confident in. Well, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He lists here four inherited qualities, four things that he did not achieve. These are things about who Paul is that give him self-confidence, self-worth. Paul put, before he was a Christian, Paul put a lot of stake in these things. Born on the eighth day, I'm circumcised on the eighth day, a little bit different. His parents, though he grew up in Tarsus, a Roman colony and Roman citizens in a foreign land, you know what? That did not stop his parents from being really devoted to God, following every jot and tittle of God's law. Before he was even born, he had really good parents who gave him a great education sent him under the school, uh, under schooling under the rabbi Gamaliel to learn, receive the best education, the best treatment. He was set up from, for success in the very beginning. He was an Israelite. He wasn't some proselyte. He wasn't some outsider who's mutilated himself in order to become identified with the people of God. No, he had that as a birthright. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. His parents broke Hebrew, even though they're in a foreign line, giving him a Hebrew education, sending him to Hebrew school. He was set up for success. You know, we uh, often don't put stock, too much stock in the advantages that we receive at birth. We think that they're actually going to be irrelevant to our standing before God. Often in the West, this is Dennis Johnson, a PCA pastor. Often in the West, we tend to credit <clears throat> only people with the achievements that they have performed themselves. Ancient peoples, including Jews, were more realistic. 
They knew family and heritage mold individuals' personalities and capabilities for good or ill. Our ancestors, parents, social class, educational opportunities, religious training or lack thereof, and other factors beyond our control mold us into who we are. These are things of real significance, things that you can't buy with money. But Paul had more than that. He continues, according to the law, he was a Pharisee. According to zeal, this is verse 6, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was not, he didn't just rely on his, who he is. He also relied on his own personal achievements. He didn't discount those things. He was, as to the law, a Pharisee. You think the Judaizers require a strict adherence to the law and requiring circumcision of the early church? No, no, no. The Pharisees required a much stricter observance. They actually required the strictest observance to God's law. They even set up and made up new laws as a hedge of protection around the written word of God so that they didn't even have the chance of breaking God's word. No one could out-Judaize a Pharisee. It wasn't possible. But not only that, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Acts 22, I believe. I'll, I'll see it later. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was so zealous, he had so much passion that he was a persecutor of the church. Notice this, what this says about sincerity. Paul was so sincere in his devotion, in his discipline, in his ambition that he willingly put people to death who he thought were violating God's law. Sinclair Ferguson points out something really helpful when we come about zeal. Zeal can be misplaced and equally serious, wrongly resourced. It can be spiritually uneducated, undisciplined by the guidelines which God gives us in Scripture, ironically in this case, and all too easy for young, poorly instructed Christians to be deceived by an impression of superior spirituality. In many ways, the idea of being superior, of being able to boast in the highest achievements, is the hallmark of false teaching. Paul had zeal, but sincerity, when it's sincerely wrong, doesn't do you much good. And as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. No Pharisee could point out in any way in his life, in his outward acts, how Paul had failed. If you were to get to heaven by Judaizing, this would be how you'd do it. Paul would have the best shot. But Paul says in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul had much to boast about. Paul had a lot to boast about, more than me and you. 
but he counted it all as loss. Why is this way worthless? First, what, do we, what way are we talking about? What's the, where's the path leading? Paul is specifically focused on being made right with God. Having, being in good standing with the God of the universe. What is not at dispute here is that humanity, sinful humanity, is at enmity with God. It's at war with him. What is not at dispute here is what God does to wicked sinners. He gives them justice. He gives them what they deserve. And what does everyone deserve, Romans 3.23? Every sin, everyone has fallen short of God's glory. And then Romans 6.23, what does every sin deserve? The wages of it, the purchasing power, the value of our sin is repaid with death. Specifically, eternal death in hell. This path that these people are on has a specific destination that he doesn't get to until verse 19, where he says, their end, the end of this path they're following, leads to destruction. Their God is their belly, living for temporary pleasures. In their glory, the thing they boast about is the very object of their shame. Paul used to be able to boast about when he talked about his zeal that he was a persecutor of the church, traveling to and you know all across the world in order to kill Christians. The very thing that he used to put his confidence in became the very object of his shame. Read Acts chapter 9 to see that. Became filth to him, odious to his nostrils. What path are we talking about? What is worthless? Trusting in yourself. Trusting in your own abilities to save yourself. Trusting that God will accept you just being a good person and leave you alone to pursue your own pleasures in life. This was the path, Judaism, and practicing specifically the Old Testament ceremonial law was going to be really appealing to the early church. Either formally you came out, you came out uh, understanding who Jesus was and you came out of a Jewish background and were struggling whether or not you should follow the Old Testament ceremonial practices still, or you came new into the church like you and me with no idea. And you're being told by rhetorically gifted people, people who know more about the Bible than you, that you need to follow all these laws if you are going to be right with God on Judgment Day. We could kind of, I can kind of at least see why that would be attractive appeal. What sort of false road on the basis of self-confidence are you attracted to? We are sold so many different lies, so many different uh, diets that we're to follow in order to be healthy. At least with a diet, though, when you believe in that and follow that path, the worst thing you can do is mess up your health. You know, maybe start a new diet in a couple months. But when you put your stake in yourself, 
The road leads to destruction. It leads to hell. It leads to eternal torment because you're rejecting God and his grace and his offer to save you. And you say, no, God, I can do this. I am confident in myself and my own capabilities. So it's really worth less than being just worthless. It has a value, but it's actually a negative value when you do your accounting. Paul, in this next section, when he's talking about the worth of Christ and knowing Christ as a way to a right relationship with God in comparison to what he just talked about, the way to God via self-confidence, he uses actually this language of gains and losses, accounting language. What Paul is getting at here is that if you follow this false way, what makes it worthless is you think you're putting in debits into the bank every week, but instead it's actually credits. You're actually making, every time you think you're making a deposit with your achievements, thinking you're gaining favor with God, instead, what you end up doing by rejecting Christ is you end up actually adding to your debt. That's where Paul's at. And that's actually why he says that, verse 7, whatever gain I counted as I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. The value of Christ is first demonstrated in examining what is worthless, self-confidence. And now he's going to talk about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What actually has worth is not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Jesus Christ. Let's keep going in verse 8, because he doubles down on this. Indeed, I count everything as loss. <clears throat> What's the everything? All his personal achievements, all his self-confidence in his birthright. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says that his, what he counted before his gain, he considered at the end of verse 8 as rubbish. That's a British word that I never use. Talking about rubbish. It's actually a word that only occurs once. The KJV actually translates this probably best when it says that he count them that he counted them as dung. Here we go. He uses the word scubula. Let me tell you some of the range of meaning here. It only occurs once. These are the semantic range. Rubbish, refuse, dung, excrement. This word, when it's used in literature outside of the New Testament, can only re can refer to any number of rotten, decaying things, all things that are worth getting rid of. 
not just that this was worthless, his self-confidence. It had a smell to it. It was actually odious in his nostrils now that he knew who Jesus Christ was. Once he figured out who Jesus Christ was, once he had the Damascus Road crash, once he experienced that, he saw that his entire life was based on a lie. He was living to do evil works, not good. He wanted to know his Savior. He wanted to know Christ. What is knowing Christ? What are we talking about here? What we're talking about here is being in union with Christ. We're getting into something that the Bible does not clearly define. It uses a lot of actually kind of like mystical and relational terminology. That when you become a Christian and you have your eyes open, like Paul, you see Jesus' worth. Yes, we read about him. We see all that he's done in the, God, the record of God's word. But also, Christians have a real relationship with Jesus Christ as he's sitting on the throne in heaven. A relationship that's made real to us and tangible to us by the Holy Spirit. Christians have eyes to see the fact that their sin is sinful and odious in God's sight. And also see the value of Jesus Christ and who he is. We're brought into such a relationship that Jesus, Romans chapter 5, that Jesus is our head and our representative. He's the head of a body, a body that is intimately connected with one another. Jesus cares for us, provides for us, takes care of us. This is just some of the value of knowing Jesus Christ but specifically as a road to being made right with God, the value of knowing Jesus Christ is said in three phrases. Verse 9, justification. Verse 10, sanctification. Verse 11, the hope of the resurrection. Our experience of knowing Christ and being in a relationship with him where we have now God as our Father, Jesus Christ as our Savior who died for us, and the Holy Spirit as our comforter, our help, our aid, has real benefits that are derived from this relationship. And they're summarized by Paul as justification, sanctification, and the hope of resurrection. Verse 9, not having a righteousness of the law, but the righteousness that is through faith in Christ. The from God, sourced in God, righteousness that comes by faith. So we don't take up that. So I don't take up too much of your time. Let me just read the Westminster, the summary of this 
topic. Shorter Catechism 33, giving a really good summary of this, says, Justification is an act of God's free grace, a gift, wherein he pardons all our sins. Part of the worth in knowing Jesus is having your sins forgiven. Not only that, though, but also accepted as righteous in his sight. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your faults and failings. The things that you used to have confidence in, he no longer has confidence in. But he only has Christ, he only has sight of Christ's righteousness. For only the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us, accounted to our account, and received by faith alone. You know you have it right when the God of the universe declares you right by him. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ and confidence in his person and work, that is true for you. But not only that, in verse 10, but also that I may know him, this relationship, knowing Christ, the value of knowing Christ, and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is an odd order. He says that he moved from resurrection to suffering to death. Don't our lives go through living, suffering, dying, and then resurrection? Isn't that the order? That's not the order of experience for a Christian. First, we receive resurrection life. We have God's Holy Spirit come and give us eyes to see He removes the dominion, the control that sin used to have over our hearts and replaces it with the rule of Christ. And through that life, as we're being conformed into his image, guess what? We're persecuted. We suffer just like Jesus suffered. And you know what? We're conformed so much into his suffering that we're made like Jesus in his very death. We pick up our cross daily and die to ourselves to live to the living God. That's our experience. This is what we mean by sanctification. We're given resurrection life, and we are enabled to live for him, and we're conformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. And lastly, the last benefit deriving from this relationship of knowing Christ is by any means possible He says that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's not that Paul has any doubts about the resurrection. And actually, for the unconverted Paul, nothing would have surprised him less than to hear that he would be saved on Judgment Day and that he is accounted as one of the people of God on the day of resurrection. That would not have surprised him at all. But now as a Christian, now as someone who's been forgiven of his entire past, this blows his mind that God would be so kind to him. You know, one of the tasks of a pastor, and probably the most important task that a pastor does, is to prepare people to die. Every one of you will die one day. Quick statistic, 
10 out of 10 people who are born die. It's something we're all going to have to deal with. How do we get prepared? Well, we can listen to all the marketing schemes that cause us and to affirm our already preconceived notions that we're good, that we got it, and we can listen to them. But as we read in verse 19, we know where that leads. It leads to destruction. If you want to be prepared to face God on Judgment Day, which is something you will do, be prepared by trusting in Christ. Not looking to yourself, putting confidence in yourself, but putting Christ, your hope in Him alone. Every other way that points you to confidence in yourself is a way that is worthless. You're going to be wasting your time. And it won't even give you any pleasure besides temporary pleasure. Instead, live after God. Live trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting in who he is, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to give you life. And you know what? That way is worth it. It is actually of more value of than anything else you could invest in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being our rock and our redeemer, our only source of help. Thank you for giving us an identity in Jesus Christ, in union with him. We thank you that the worth of Jesus Christ and the value of knowing him, that it has so many real life present benefits in our life. We thank you that you've given us the free offer to place our trust in Jesus Christ, that we can have our sins atoned for, that we can have our sins paid for in full by Jesus Christ. In other words, we can be justified. We thank you that you have blessed your people here and now to have resurrection life and to grow in our self-denial though imperfect in this life. And Lord, where our ultimate hope is and where our ultimate focus is, is that one day we are going to have to stand before you. And our hope is in Jesus Christ alone to provide the way of escape, to provide the way of salvation, because we won't be counted among the wicked, because we've had our sins paid for. Lord, I pray that this hope would empower us to live for Christ, to spend every waking moment. The thing that we boast about most is the fact that we have a relationship with the living God. God is our Father, the Son is our Savior, and the Holy Spirit is our comforter, giving us strength. I pray that that would be our boast, that we would be so excited about it that the thing that would drive us on in life would be to know Christ better, to know our God more. Lord, I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.